This is a HeadGum Podcast. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Inside Voices. I'm Kevin T. Porter. My guest today is Travis McElroy. Okay, a little background. Travis McElroy is a performer who in 2010 started a podcast with his brother Justin and his brother Griffin called My Brother, My Brother and Me, a comedy advice show in which the hosts are trying desperately to not give advice the whole time. It is wacky, goofy, very funny, and the lifelong relationship of three boys who like and love each other is fundamental to its deep and wide appeal. Over time, it's amassed a surprisingly diverse audience. It spawned a TV adaptation on CISO, RIP CISO, and Travis would go on to host and produce no less than 12 podcasts over the next decade, although now he's whittled it down to a more manageable three. In addition to Mabem Bam, which is short for My Brother, My Brother and Me, he hosts Schmanners, a podcast about etiquette with his wife, Teresa McElroy, and The Adventure Zone, a wildly successful Dungeons and Dragons podcast the McElroy brothers write and perform with their father, Clint. His brothers also have several ongoing podcasts, respectively. And there's a way in which Travis's work life is pretty enviable. He's in business with his family, making a product a great number of people adore, and he gets to do all this without having to live in New York or LA. Travis has made a home with his family in Cincinnati, the city he didn't have to live in but wanted to, and the scrappy audio empire the McElroys have stumbled into has worked and connected with audiences in a way that feels fully irreplicable. It's the precedent that shouldn't be referenced the kismet that could not be concocted. It's tempting to look at them and think that starting a podcast with your family essentially about nothing is a rocket ship to success, but I think that could only work the one time, and they are the one time it could work. So now let's hear the irreplicable Travis McElroy describe his own voice. Weird. Is that that descriptive enough? Travis McElroy has a weird voice? Just weird. Yeah. Weird can mean so many different things, though. What does that mean for you? No, because the thing is, is like, I have felt both ways about my voice. Is the thing. It's like weird in two ways of like weird bad and weird good. Weird unique. Like, I have a unique voice. I have a, not anymore, but for a long, long time, hated it. So, bad, disgusting, gross, off-putting. That was the weird bad. Yeah. And that was, was that pre-podcasting or was that like throughout podcasting as well? 100%. I mean, even like during podcasting. I, I, this is a big thing to drop right here at the beginning, Kev, but 
the thing is, is this, by doing like character voices in Adventure Zone that I started to like my voice again, like hearing it as a character and not as myself. That that made me like it, and like editing podcasts and hearing my voice over and over and over again, like got me kind of uh, in it, like inured to it. So it doesn't, it didn't bother me as much anymore. You built up a Travis McElroy voice immunity for yourself. Yeah, more or less. I mean, because the thing is, is a lot of the problem when I was a kid came from like the voice I heard in my head was this like deep, cool, buttery, smooth, awesome voice. And then like I'd hear it in a recording and be like, "Mm, can I curse, Kevin? I'd be like, fuck, this, what is this voice? This isn't my voice. I hate this. And so, like, whether it was, like, answering machine messages or, like, especially, like, with singing, because I did a lot of, like, uh, musical theater when I was a kid, and, like, I'd watch the, like, videos of it later and be like, this is not how I thought I sounded in this show. And, like, then doing, like, just, like, talking into a microphone and, like, recording that whenever my brothers and I would, like, we had, you know, all the little, like, cassette recorder things, toys and stuff, and I play with that, and I'm just like, I hate, I hate my voice. People also would tell me, like, that my voice was weird. Justin, and I do not hold this against him now, and neither should anybody listening, but Justin, when we were far younger, like, I was probably, like, 16 or 17, told me that I sounded like I had swallowed a handful of gravel and I got stuck halfway down my throat. (laughs) Yeah, but not like in a cool gravelly voice kind of way, but just like in a, your voice is weird, which is why it's always so weird to me when people are like, I can't tell the brother's voices apart. When it's like, really? Because like, I think my voice sounds way different from Justin and Griffin's, but now we're just talking about like sound quality. If we're talking about the voice in general, I was in speech therapy from like seven years old to like high school. Why'd you need it? I had a uh, bad sibilance, my S's and Z's. I had a lazy tongue. I have a very big tongue and it would like, uh, uh, like I could not keep it behind my teeth. So like I had problems with like S and sh and Z and TH sounds and th sounds. What did those sound like before the voice lessons? I mean, it was like F's and T's and like there was a little bit of that, but mostly it was also like I mumbled a lot. Like I, I, I did not, I did not enunciate well. And like the same year I started going to speech therapy was the same year I started the talented and gifted smart kids program at my school and started wearing glasses and got diagnosed with ADD. (laughs) So like all in second grade. So it's just like, hey, what a cool year for you, you cool dude. And that's also the year I started doing musical theater, which was cool. That was another thing that like I did not like about my voice. And even now podcasting has helped with this a lot. But when I like get tired I will mumble again and I will not enunciate and it will be like hard to understand. And so like there was that. And then in addition to that, I was born and raised in West Virginia. I lived in West Virginia for 18 years before I went to school and went to like urban, fancy Oklahoma. So I had like a West Virginia accent, you know, for a long time uh, until I started. I, I don't know if it's because of musical theater or because of speech therapy, but that I started like distancing myself from the accent so it was like i had a kind of weird voice mixed with enunciation problems mixed with this like strong country accent and it was like a lot of like this is not a this is not a good radio voice 
in college, I was taking a professional like prep work theater class. It had a better name than that, but uh, part of the class is like we would do mock auditions, and it, so like we'd be told what the audition was for. You prepare two pieces, you come in and do them for the class, right? And then the teacher would like decide if you got the call back or not, basically. And one of the assignments was uh, like voiceover, like a I don't remember if it was like cartoon or commercial or what, but I just didn't do it. I like came in and said like, oh, I haven't prepared anything. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I just didn't do it. And he was like, okay. So then after class, he's like, why didn't you do it? And I was like, I have a terrible voice. No one is ever going to hire me for my voice. Like I am a character actor. I am a comedic actor. Like I, I sell myself with like physicality and facial expressions and all of that, not my voice. And now that's very ironic considering that I am well-known for using my voice. Yeah, I'm majority known for a voice, more yeah. so than visually. Yeah, indeed. There are still people who, when I post a picture or something, will be like, I had no idea what you look like. <laughs> and that's strange, too. Do you, do you get the thing that a lot of people get where it's like, oh, I pictured you looking much differently than what you sounded like? Yeah, and the weird thing is, it's like whenever I, I press that, which I don't normally, but when I'm like, what did you think I'd look like? They don't have an answer. It's just, I, I think actually now that I've like dyed my hair and like pierced my ears and, you know, I think I'm more of what people picture when they picture it. You know what I mean? Another part of it, maybe maybe the, the title is a flamboyant voice. Because like that's the thing of like uh, for a long time because of like my exuberance and maybe like maybe part of it was the lisping and because that is an unfortunate stereotype that there were plenty of people in West Virginia and Oklahoma who were like you're gay right not in like a necessarily judgmental way so much as it was just like a factor like just a, this is a true thing about you correct <laughs> like I remember one time somebody after we started doing schmanners my wife and I doing schmanners somebody tweeted at Teresa like I hate to tell you this but I think your husband is gay because of how he sounds. Hmm. And it's like, oh, cool. <laughs> wow, that's really uh, small-minded and bigoted of you. Cool, cool. You would <laughs> think uh, Teresa would be amongst the first people to know if you were actually gay. Right, yeah. 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 I mean, she'd only been with me like eight years yes. at that point. <laughs> that is a common thing. That, that's that got to be so generational, too. There's a couple of things uh, that you've said that have struck me as like particularly generational, one of which is... The fact that um, growing up, I don't think we had a lot of models voice-wise for enunciating and not mumbling. It feels like so many of the things that are propped up as like cool, aspirational, or even maybe even sometimes like, like heroic or whatever the protagonist is. You don't think of someone doing this. Like it's not like we we adored Rex Harrison as little twelve-year-olds right. in middle school. Whereas I feel like now, because of the way media works and because that's so disseminated, that might be different so yeah i think a lot of it also had to do with like maybe because of the add like i talked so fast like i didn't think about what i was saying and so i would talk so quickly that it's like i did not take the time and it actually has been i talk a lot about all like my different coping mechanisms though I, I, that's a weird way to put it but it's the only it's a good explanation for it uh, for like dealing with ADD and stuff. And one of them I found was like, by thinking about my diction, I slowed down 
the speed at which I talked and it gave my brain time to catch up. Hmm. So like when I'm recording, I'm really trying to think about like tongue tongue placement and like how how I sound so that it's giving me time to like catch up on it, you know what I mean? And not get too far ahead of myself. Yeah, I do feel like that's actually made you more thoughtful in some ways because of that. I think so, yeah. I mean, it's it's given me better word choice. But once again, it's when I think about it. That's the other thing is like, this is something I worry about now, not to get too serious for a second, but now with like BB and and Dot, you know, kids model their parents. Yeah, my daughter's kids, kids model after their parents. And I'm so worried, like I'll be sitting around, you know, speaking lazily and it's like, are they going to pick? Because, like, already BB does, like, the, like, R and W substitutions, which is, like, really common for kids, which is, like, instead of saying, I need a rest, you would say, I need a West, right? And really it's adorable, common. so you don't mind yeah. it at the time. Well, it is adorable. And that's, uh, honestly, one of the problems with, like, getting kids to speak correctly is, like, a lot of the stuff is adorable. <laughs> and so, like, for example, the other day she was trying to say hospital, and she kept saying, like, Hos- hospital or something. And, like... It was cute, but like knowing how bad Teresa and I were like, hospital. She's like, yeah, hospital, hospital. And we're like, no, hospital. And it's like, I feel like an asshole right now. Like, no, say it right. But like, I know that if I don't do that, then like, how long are you going to keep saying it incorrectly? And yeah, I, I don't want you to start school, you know, in hopefully six months or so and have the teacher be like, what did you say? <laughs> like, I want you to say the right words. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you said that kind of uh, strikes me as something tied to a particular time maybe, hopefully, historically, is the idea of getting misoriented uh, for the way you talk and people assuming certain things about your sexuality because your voice. And again, I think it's one of those things where it's just like an absence of models for if, if every depiction you see of a queer person, they talk in a particular way or like particular things, then of course it would be natural. And even when people did assume it in ways that were not unkind, it would be natural for people to think a certain thing and just make assumptions. Because I feel like that's something even I've gone through. That's something I've even gone through in front of you, if you'll recall, a couple of years ago, where someone did just like fully assume. And, you know, maybe that was a voice thing and maybe there were just like other aesthetic things tied into that. Well, I think a lot of that has to do, because like I've talked about this with people a lot, is like it has to do with coding, right? Is like this thing of like for a long time, characters were coded like you would code them as queer, right? Instead of saying this character is gay or this is she's a lesbian or whatever. Yeah, right? like most they of would, the Disney animated canon, all the villains are somewhat right. coded. Yeah. They would code them in some way because they like didn't think they could just say like this person is gay, right? And so they would code them so it's like, oh yeah, clearly that character is gay. Right. And so they needed like shorthand to like make that clear and so unfortunately it's like if they wanted to code a character as gay they would make him really flamboyant and like really kind of like floppy hands and lispy and stuff and it's like okay but and, and the thing is, is it's not that there aren't you know gay guys like that but there are also plenty of straight guys like that and there are plenty of women like that like there are plenty of non-binary people like that like it has nothing to do it was just like an easy way to like shorthand like you get it you get it right you understand what we're saying and so for like a little kid like me where it's like literally i sounded like this kevin hi father what are you doing it was like the like it was a lot we have home videos of me as a kid and it's like you can barely understand like i cannot even 
accurately recreate like my speech impediment now because of like how hard I've worked to do it, like to not do it. And it's like also for the same reason, I'm not very good. Actually, my like ask anyone, I am not good at recreating an uh, accurate West Virginia accent. Like I have these friends who are like from Boston and Philadelphia and stuff, and they can just like drop into their old like say like do your Philadelphia accent, and they'll just like drop into it. And I'm like impressive. I cannot do that. Yeah, it's always blocked out for you. Yeah, right. I've worked so hard to get this voice, and it's one of those things too that feels culturally loaded in terms of the way that people perceive and assume certain things about people who have southern accents too right like like because because that's you know and it's different from like queer coding but that does and that did feel coded in a different way in a lot of media growing up too where like if you want to especially even in things like comedy sketch shows or the carol burnett show or something like that if you want to tell an audience that someone is kind of dumb or not that smart a very easy way to get there is with a southern accent well and it also has to do with identity you know like if you talk to somebody who's originally from boston right or originally from philadelphia or originally from new york originally from chicago like these places where you think like i can i hear that accent and i know where they're from right there is a certain pride that like comes up like you know there's like my friends that are from Philadelphia are very proud that they're from Philadelphia like ask ask Hal Lublin about being from Philadelphia sometime and he'll talk your ear off right and so that wasn't necessarily true growing up in West Virginia like the the identity that people were proud of there was not a good identity to be proud of right there wasn't like this West Virginia pride because of how great, you know, the, you believed the state. Like, it was, like, the people with, you know, the Confederate flag in, which, let me just clear this up, folks. As a born and raised West Virginianite, West Virginian, um, West Virginia exists purely to join the Union. It is why the state exists. People hanging up Confederate flags is the most ridiculous, dumbass thing uh but so like but that was like uh, the identity that people from west virginia showed pride in which sucks because that was like not i like that was not something i saw in my town growing up like i grew up in huntington west virginia and it wasn't like confederate flags hanging from everybody's porches or whatever now uh having been removed for for many years i do feel a sense of pride from being from there because of how beautiful it is and like learning about the history of it and stuff but it wasn't like i'm proud of my accent i never i remember once in college i was auditioning for a guest director and after i like did my monologue she goes are you from west virginia and i was like yeah how'd you know that And she's like i can hear it in your voice and i was horrified i was like how did what do you uh how did you like i was embarrassed in like it was and like it was such a weird thing that she was just like, I have a great ear for accents. And I was like, okay. But like it really threw me off. So that was kind of the weird bad part of your voice. When did Yeah, right. When did your voice start to feel or at least sound to you to be weird good? So when we recorded the first episode of My Brother, My Brother and Me, uh, I was very nervous. What year uh, was Justin, this? This was 2010. Okay. Ju- yeah. April of 2010. Um, Justin and Griffin had already been doing the Joystick podcast um, for Joystick, the the uh, website that they you know wrote about video games for, and so Justin was like, "We'll do this podcast." And a combination of having not done it before and hating my voice, 
And so I was very nervous. And I, whether he meant to do this or not, I still do not know. But then Justin said, like, this is going to be a test episode. So we'll just record and see how it goes before we record an actual episode. And I was like, okay, cool. So we just recorded. I didn't think about it. I wasn't nervous. And then we finished and he was like, okay, that was good. We'll publish it. And I was like, ooh. Um, so like then that episode came out and like people listened to it and said they liked it. So like that started to build my confidence. And at the same time that I got that, uh, that we started doing My Brother, My Brother and Me, which I now think of as a job, I got another job uh, working at the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company and I got hired as their master carpenter at the time and eventually became technical director. But I also acted in a lot of stuff, too. And so I, you know, got to speak on stage and stuff as well, including like getting to do complete works of William Shakespeare abridged, which is one of my favorite comedies ever. It's very dumb and I have a lot of fun doing it. But like doing stuff on stage where I actually got to like use my voice and working at a Shakespeare company and like you know, doing exercises and stuff and warming up my instrument. Uh, what were some of those warm-ups? I'm always curious with that stuff. About warm-ups? Yeah. I, I did a lot of sibling shit, you know? I slit the sheet, the sheet I slit, and on the slitted sheet I set. A lot of that stuff. When I was in college, I hate, like, my voice addiction teacher, who I now love and is a very dear woman, but at the time... She, it was like it was like straight out of a movie where like the 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 professor the the person you've been sent to your whatever your spiritual advisor is like it's like Mr. Miyagi having you do like the wax on wax off and you're like I'm supposed to be learning karate and then he goes to punch you and you do it and you're like what because she was like now we're all gonna be seaweed and move around I'm like I'm not fucking how is this gonna help me act I'm not fucking unless I'm acting in Little Mermaid what are you talking about and it was like I just didn't want to relax i didn't and so like for example like i took voice addiction one and two which were the only ones we were required to take and like voice addiction three was like accent work and i was like no thank you and like now i'm kicking myself i was like why the fuck didn't i take accent work? and it was because i didn't think i'd use it and which of course what so i you know got back to like working on projecting and being heard uh, to the back of the theater and that kind of stuff. And like speaking in very, like when you're doing Shakespeare, it's very uh, specific language and it's very like how, where, where the, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing with iambic pentameter, right? You're thinking about emphasis and you're thinking about how you're breaking down the uh, syllables and punctuation and all that stuff. So like, that was very good for me to think about in terms of like that. And as you said, seeing it modeled, in these professional actors that I very much respected who were speaking that way. And like, it was an environment in which even when we were just having like production meetings, right? We were all speaking very, we were all soaking it in. Um, and so then we started doing more and more My Brother, My Brother, and we started doing live shows with it. And that was another thing of like, I want to be understood. After a while, then I started doing other podcasts uh and ranging from let me see how many i can remember in case of emergency bunker buddies i want to say the next one was trends like these and then in Bang with travis and tybee then schmanners then the kind rewind i think with me and Teresa, and then run a doctor who fan cast uh and also in there was uh surprisingly nice 
that I did with Hal Lublin. We only did a couple episodes of that, but I really like that one. Maybe I'll bring that back. I already do too many. Uh, and let's see. Uh, also, then there's, of course, Adventure Zone. Uh, the McRoy brothers will be in Trolls World Tour and Till Death Do Us Blart. Um, and so I was using my voice a lot. There was a time, not anymore, but there was a time where I was putting out 28 episodes of something a month. So, like, a lot. Too much. What, but, was, what was the rationale behind that? Because you start My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and it, it kind of has the trajectory that you might expect of, like, starting starting a little soft and then gaining a following slowly over time with a few huge inflection points. But then as far as, like, diversifying into all these other shows, what was, what was kind of the engine of rationale driving that? So we were doing My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and I can never quite remember the timing uh, I have to always like compare calendars, but I think we started doing Adventure Zone like just before I moved to Los Angeles. But anyway, so I moved to Los Angeles with my wife, uh, then, uh, no, then wife, we just got married. I got there, and so I had the like recurring like money I was making off of my brother, my brother, and me as like kind of my steady paycheck but it really wasn't enough to move to los angeles on and like we just had a wedding i got a bunch of like jobs and stuff not the only one that's really springing in mind now is when i worked in like haunted houses for because we moved there in like september and so for the month of october i worked for a company that like went to very rich people's houses and set up haunted houses like in their garages oh like little pop-ups yeah, a little pop up haunted houses. Oh, that's and was was actually like my third haunted house job in my life. Mm. Um, yeah, and I hated it a lot. But what I I wanted to create thing. The problem is Justin and Griffin were still in uh, West Virginia and Texas, um, and I was like, well, I can't do live shows regularly without them. And I don't have any properties that, like, I could go to somebody and say, hey, I want to pitch a show based off of this podcast I do. Because, like, my brothers weren't here and they weren't interested at that time. And so I was like, I need to create some shows that are with people that, A, I'm in the same city as so that we can, like, do stuff together. And, B, that I'm kind of creating on my own and developing my own identity as a performer instead of just being seen as a package deal of the McRoy brothers. What I did not do, uh, which I should have done, is spent a lot of time developing like the perfect next thing. Instead, it was like I would meet someone who I'd be like, I really like you and I think you're cool. And I kind of had this passing idea for a podcast. So let's start doing it today. Um, and that's how I started doing way too many instead of like focusing on like one, but basically I had gone from having a full-time job more than at the Shakespeare company where some weeks I was putting in like 80, 90 hours uh, and like sleeping on the couch at the theater for like four hours and going back to work to then just doing podcasting. So it's suddenly like I'm feeling of all my, all this time on my hands. What am I even doing? I am, you know, why did I move to LA? Am I being productive? What is happening? What is going on? And so I wanted to fill the time. And so I focused on quantity rather than quality. And I think if I could do it all again, I would hate to say I would do it differently because I had a lot of fun doing those shows with people. And like, I still do Schwanners and I just recently stopped doing trends like these. Uh, and like Bunker Buddies, I had to stop doing when I moved. 
and like, can I pet your dog? That's another one that I had to stop doing when I moved. If I could do it differently, I think I probably would have gone back and really spent some time developing. Man, if I could do it differently with the knowledge I have now, I would write like a narrative single voice, you know, like storytelling show and like something that was just me that I can control and all that stuff. But I also wish I could go back in time and say, hey, you will reach a point where people will be excited to have you on their thing without like having to develop this ind- quote individual personality of Travis McRoy. Because at the time, what I wish I had known is like all of that comes from like connections you make and like networking you do and someone saying like, you're fun to hang out with. We want you to be a panelist on this thing and not like because you are seen as an individual or whatever, right? I've gotten more work being like asked to guest on something or being a talking head or something by because it was like somebody that I did a panel at a convention with or that I met at like a party that someone I knew was throwing. And then they're like, you are great come on this thing and not because they were a huge fan of my work. Yeah. Like literally by being nice and and kind to people rather than like trying to prove that you're not the Garfunkel (laughs) or something. Right. Exactly. Exactly that. And, and, and that, and, but what I thought was like, I'm only seen as a package deal. That's why I'm not getting asked to do things because if I can't bring my brothers with me, they don't want just me. When the answer is, it's like people just didn't know me. Right. Like they're, it was. It's really easy, and this is something I, I I don't know who needs to hear this, but maybe somebody does. It's really con- uh, easy to confuse like having an audience with thinking you are well known in the industry, but especially with nowadays when everything is so uh, there's so much content in the world that there are like hugely popular shows. That if you take like one step to the left and ask this person if they know about it, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking Fully. about. Fully, yeah. I mean, what do and you care about more though? What I care about as far as like being a creative, creatively fulfilled and thinking is the audience, of course. Like I I, I adore, it's, it's, fuck, it's the most cliche thing in the world, but I really do love my audience very much. And it's why I love going to conventions and love doing it. And I miss it so much right now, Kevin. Is like the face to face time of like talking to people is 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 my fuel and it makes me very happy and our audience has always been so good to us and so supportive to us is like yeah it's that but as far as like now I have a family that I have to support and I do not know what the tale of podcast career looks like you know I don't know is this like yeah you're you're living off those podcast proceeds well into your 70s like I don't know right and so I'm trying to build a career and that takes diversifying the portfolio and reaching because that's the thing is I don't want to be making my brother my brother me when I'm 62 that was gonna be my question is like yeah because there is such lack of precedent as far as yeah, this is how long you do a show. Unless it's like right. a discrete seasons for 10 episodes of an investigative podcast. There's not really like, and then you stop, unless, you know, unless right. it is dictated well, by format. And think about this, right? We've been going for a, a 10 years, right? And if you put that in terms of like a TV show, this is 10 seasons, right? So if, if podcasting was like TV shows, right, we'd be in syndication. We'd be living off residuals for the rest of our lives. We'd be, be asked to appear as guests on things, we could make a paycheck anytime we wanted to by like going to a convention or being a guest part on a TV show, right? But that's not how podcasting works. Once you stop doing it, 
you stop getting paid for it. So it's different from like albums, movies, like books, all of this stuff where the tail on it is like you keep making money on it as long as people are buying the thing. Yeah, there's not really such a thing as passive income with this stuff. Right, right, right. So that's when I realized like I need to make sure that I have I am having the type of career that people are like, oh, oh, we're working on this project. Oh, you know who would be fun to have on it? Travis. Right, not like Travis is so popular right now that we'd be dumb not to have him on it, which is how I used to think it worked. But like the fact of the matter is, is like Paul F. Tompkins is an incredibly talented comedian and actor and all those things, right? And I always get excited when I see him in something or hear his voice in something. So what I'm about to say is not to take away from his talent at all. But people love him. The people who work with him, the people who are his friends, love Paul F. Tompkins. And that is why he's in everything. You know what I mean? Like, they're talent. he's talented, so they know that they're getting talent, right? So that's what makes it so easy to say yes. But you also have to think that it's people who are like, Paul will be fun to hang out on set. It will be good to have Paul F. Tompkins in it. We will be happy that Paul F. Tompkins is here. You know, and and like if you're super, I remember a casting director in college saying to me, like, everyone who goes into an audition, you have to think most of them are talented. Maybe not everyone. Most of them are talented. And so what they're more often than not looking for is who is talented and will be fun to hang out at the after party. And like, that's the thing is like it. The rare exception tends to be like white actors who are seen as incredibly handsome and talented and so they can act like assholes right and for some reason they fucking keep working but most of the time it's like yeah if you're nice that's way better like you gotta be talented and in and fun and talented and your company is desirable and so anyways that that long way to say as i started all of those other podcasts I was doing the editing on my them myself because with my brother, my brother and me and the Adventure Zone for a long time, it was Griffin doing it. And so, but with uh, all the other ones that I started, I was editing it. So I was listening to my voice over and over and over again. And I was able to kind of disassociate from it and not really think about it. People have asked me this before, like when you're editing, do you ever like start to feel like that's not funny that thing I said or oh I sound so dumb and I'm like no because I'm not listening to myself I'm like listening to Travis the podcaster speaking on the thing the character of Travis that, that person is talking and I'm the editor now and I have no control over what he said so I can't think about it in those like I can't get caught up listening to my own voice or else I'm not doing a very good job editing. Yeah, you almost have to invent the fiction of I'm an audience member cutting this together. Right. This is what I want to hear. More so than like, I got to protect myself and be right. the best. It's like, well, what's the better experience for someone who I don't know? Well, and also, I mean, if I'm not going to lie, I wish I, maybe I, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I wish I was more evolved in this, but the fact that people like listening to my show also did a lot to help my self-confidence in my voice. Because I was like, well, I guess if my voice was that bad, they wouldn't be listening. <laughs> like, you know, so it's like that, there's something about when we started working on the My Brother, My Brother and Me TV show, uh, our showrunner and dear, dear friend J.D. Amato uh, got me and Justin and Griffin, all three uh, engraved compasses that all said professional comedian. 
Uh, and the reason being is, is like, you are professional comedians. Like, you have to trust that now and trust that you know what you're doing and know where you're going and know what you're saying. Because, like, the three of us, our tendency for a long time when people are, like, either using the word comedian or professional, we'd be like, eh, <laughs> oh, oh, eh. And after a while, and that's coming from me, a guy with sometimes heaps and heaps of self-confidence and sometimes not, but normally heaps and heaps of self-confidence. And it's like, yeah, but uh, no, there are comedians out there. And it's like, yeah, but you're a comedian. Are you like, I, I exist primarily on a career built on making comedy. And it's like the same thing as like with the adventure zone now is like big part of my uh, career is storytelling and writing. And it's like, I'm, I'm a New York times bestselling author, but if someone's like, you're a writer, right? I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, uh, and it's like yes yes i am you know yeah it's hard to humbly own that without it sounding like a whatever like a a a, a sort of spin or manipulation of what you actually feel like sometimes in the context of a humble brag but it's hard to be like yes it's just like the age-old thing of you it's really difficult to accept the compliment sometimes well that's the thing is when someone's like you're an author it's like that's not how I think of myself. Like, I think of myself, if someone said, you're a writer, I'd be like, yes, I have written The Adventure Zone now for a while, and we wrote these books, and like, yes. But if someone's like, you're an author, for some reason, connotation-wise mm-hmm. is different to me. I'm like, nah, I don't really consider myself that way. Uh, but uh, my favorite, um, one of my favorite jokes uh, that Justin has ever said, or I guess maybe just one of the truest things, is the worst thing about being a New York Times number one best-selling author is anytime someone says that you're a New York Times best-selling author, you're legally required to say number one, <laughs> number one best-selling <laughs> author. <laughs> yes, that is a legal requirement. It's yeah. weird that they number passed one. that law, but I know, right? I'm so kind of glad they did because it's good for everyone's confidence. Let's take a break from Travis's weird voice, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to Inside Voices. And now, here's the rest of my conversation with Travis. One thing I think about a lot, and especially with you and your family, but something I think about for myself and for other people is this idea of the sort of a Christian term, but it is the idea of stewardship. So it's like, you've been given this, you've achieved this or gained this through hard work and kismet and this alchemy and XYZ happening. And then kind of facing the questions of how do you steward those things well? 
uh, along the way. So especially as someone with a family while also trying to do these things that sometimes feel antithetical to family, which is like, and, and like the privacy concerns of having a family, which is like sort of transparency and being yourself and giving of yourself in these kind of like vulnerable spaces. How do you feel like you steward your audience and the how's attention my walk? that you've been Is that what you mean? How's, how's your my walk? walk? How's your walk how's and how's walk? your heart? Yes. How's, how's your heart? Uh, well, to answer your question, I mean, it, that is a tough balance, you know? Like I've been... I've been I've been in this game now for over a decade, mm-hmm. Kevin. Um, but it didn't feel like stewardship at the beginning. Is the thing? No, not at all. At the beginning, uh, I think at that point I was way more open. The thing is, is like a big okay. So a big turning point in this is when Teresa was pregnant with Bibi, with my first daughter, and like Teresa and I had a conversation about like, are we going to post pictures of her online? Are we going to like show her face? You know, much like a lot like the kind of humble brag humility thing we were just talking about, there's a part of you who wants to say, like, I do not think I am important enough that I really have to worry about that. It's like deciding what where you want to live. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's what's right for you and your family. And for me, I'm willing to share so much of myself uh, with with my audience and with the world and talk about things that for my own mental health, for my family's safety, and for BB's privacy, it's like there has to be things. There has to be things. And, and you know, the weird thing is, is like, you talk about stewardship, and that's something I think about a lot. Uh, because one of the things that we kind of realized really, really early on in, in our podcasting and just in front of like having a, an audience is like a level of responsibility that like is a thing that makes me legit furious when I see other content creators not accepting or acknowledging or just and sometimes ignoring the responsibility that they have to an audience. And I don't mean like owing the audience something because they, you know, invested time or money or interest in you or whatever. I do think that there is some degree of that that is true, but I mean more like doing the right thing and being somebody who can set a good example or does their best. I mean, I'm not fucking perfect. Like I screw up all the time. And now I'm 36. There is no way I have my finger on the pulse of like, I know exactly what the right thing culturally to be pushing and saying and stuff right now. I'm trying, but there is no way. And like, give me four years and I'll be so far out of touch. Not on purpose, but that'll happen. But I do my best and I see a lot of creators out there not doing that and sometimes actively shit stirring to get more attention or like catering to a, a, angrier, seedier, worse element to grow their audience or grow their product or whatever. And that to me is just so disgusting. Yeah, well, I I think what we're getting at and kind of alluding to and something you've probably experienced in the last 10 years is sort of the the positive flip side of what some people would deem cancel culture, but the idea of correction culture or the Mm. ability and capacity for people to learn and grow along the way. Dude, I've seen so many... Mostly white dudes, but different people uh, in entertainment industry. But, like, the ones I'm thinking of now are, like, specifically, like, comedians. Where, like, they make some kind of joke or they make some kind of thing and it pisses people off. Rightly so. 
But then there's this other side of their audience is like, nah, fuck them, man. You're great. Speaking truth to power. Don't let them censor you. Oh, these libs, right? And they make the decision to lean into those people. And they're like, yeah, these are the real people that support me. These are the real people, you know, like, yeah, you're right. And like, there is this like, it's the dark side, right? It's the dark side of the force where it's like, like you, you feel all this support and you feel your audience might even grow the shittier you become because there are people who are like, yeah, you tell it to them. Do you feel like you had to confront that? Like a sort of fork in the road like that where it's like you could lean into the worst impulses or not? I don't remember ever having to make that decision. And that's not me saying like, I'm such a great guy. I never even considered it. It's more like I just felt guilty and bad and didn't want people (laughs) to be mad at me. Sure. Like I've seen that happen with no kind of like acknowledgement of like, listen, I know I'm making the world a worse, angrier, more hateful place to grow my audience and sell tickets. And like, that's so clearly what they're doing. Um, And so, yeah, for me, it's like, there have been plenty of times in the last 10 years where I have fucked up and um, somebody will say like, hey, you fucked up. Now, some people will say it in a way that is difficult to listen to. This is this is speaking. Maybe you said something insensitive or something that might have been hurtful to a person or ignorant. Yes, or correct. Ignorant. Okay. And uh, sometimes it is said in a way that perhaps is not constructive or is difficult to listen to. But there is also plenty of people who are like, "Hey, you might not have known or whatever." They have done a lot of emotional labor to give me a chance to be better. Then there are also plenty of people, once again, I think people who maybe are well-intentioned who are like, don't let the haters get you down. And also people like, they fucking oversensitive, blah, 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 right? Look look at it this way, right? Because sometimes when you talk about like culture and stuff, it can seem pretty subjective. But if we were talking about like an objective thing, right? If I was spelling a word wrong, if I was doing math wrong, and there was somebody like, hey, just so you know, actually the answer to that math problem is this and there are people like ignore them you can do math wrong if you want to (laughs) fuck that it's like why would i listen to the people telling me to just keep doing it wrong and so like that's kind of my thing is like me learning how to do something better costs me nothing uh except acknowledging that i messed up and that seems to be what the shitty people, other entertainers that I have no respect for, refuse to do, is that they sit there and go like, okay, well, if that person's right, then I was wrong, and that makes me feel bad. So rather than me feel bad, I will just say that they're wrong so that I don't have to be wrong. And like that is a, a self, like kind of, not just a self-fulfilling prophecy, but like a self-strengthening cycle, where like the more you say, if they are right and I am wrong, then I am bad. But I refuse to acknowledge that I am bad, and so they are wrong. And the more you do that, the harder it becomes for someone to be like, wait, maybe I am wrong. And maybe it's because it is like become this like triumvirate hive mind of me and Justin and Griffin of like we we share discussions about that. That like, you know, in, in those early days when we would do something that uh, upset people that was ignorant, that was, you know, insensitive, and someone would say something. You, you always had the impulse to be like, I didn't do anything wrong because I'm a nice guy. 
And so it it's very helpful to have like two other human beings who are like, well, let's talk about it before we address it. And like, here's the thing, I've, I've fucked up recently with like, not, not, with something like being insensitive or ignorant or so, but like responding to criticism and this like, no, you know what? You're wrong. And like that, that like unreceptive kind of attitude is just not, it's not who I want to be, but it is a very easy person to kind of fall into, right? Because like you want to be a good person and there are two ways to feel like a good person. And one is hard work and education and continuing to like to strive to fix your mistakes. And the other way is to tell yourself you're a good person already. And that one is way easier. Yeah, shore up, denial, isolate. Right. Yeah. And so like, I think that there's a reason that it is so easy for, for people who fuck up to just fall back on, well, I think you're wrong for being upset about it. Cause it seems like a subjective thing, right? But I I have found a lot more personal growth and self-respect from going the other way. And it's hard. I mean, there's still leaving yourself open to to feedback like that is like trying to it's it can be really, really difficult. Right. Because like if you think about it, like building a sieve. Right. You the first person to invent a sieve. Right. Was like how can I make it and it still holds together right because I want to let water through but if the rocks come through that sucks and so that's the difficult thing is you're trying to build a mesh that lets constructive feedback and things that you should improve on through while keeping out the people who just want to yell at you or have their own personal agenda or just like you because of who you are. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll, I'll never forget when we started the My Brother, My Brother and Me TV show, the day it went up, like we put out the first episode and somebody tweeted at me, I created this Twitter account to tell you how much I hate your glasses. <laughs> mm. I was just like, what? And like that that kind of thing of like, you can't, I can't let that kind that of thing That feels easy to not internalize. Right, yeah, right, not, exactly. Not conversation. But some of this stuff, you do wonder if there is like, the constructive positive way of because they say like oh don't internalize criticism don't internalize negativity but i th- i i do wonder if there are like positive constructive ways of like internalize criticism in the technical sense of that word where it's like if this can construct something within you by internalizing oh, yeah. it and it sounds Definitely. like you're at least trying to do that. I'm doing it right now. Yesterday, I had a, a long conversation. I'm not joking. Yesterday, I had a Twitter interaction talking about like uh, the current arc of Adventure Zone, which I'm working on. And uh, we're on like episode, we're, we're about to record episode 15 this week. And so, like, early on, got a lot of not backlash. That's not, there are people who didn't like it. You know, it's a new series, it's different from the ones we've done before. And so, like, I shut it out, more or less. I would still look at it. Like, I would, I because I am me, uh, I would seek it out. I'd, like, go read forums and Reddit and Twitter about it every week. But I would not internalize it. I would just see it, get angry about it, and then close the page, right? I'd read it, say, like, these people don't know what they're talking about, and close the page. And I realized that in doing that... And I realized this yesterday, 
that in doing that, I had not left myself open to the possibility that perhaps I could be constantly improving the thing I was doing, right? Is that I had not left myself open to the possibility that maybe what I was doing was not perfect. Um, And so I've spent like the last 36 hours doing kind of whatever the opposite of a cleanse is, where I've been like compacting all of this feedback that people have been emailing me and reading it and trying to filter out the chunks of like, that is a good idea. I should be doing that and not internalizing it in terms of I am doing a bad job and they are right and I'm horrible at this, but more of like, I am not perfect and this is a journey and you should be trying to improve everything over time. And if I deny the fact that I might be doing something wrong, I will not improve. This so reminds me of kind of a Damon Lindelof philosophy he had, Mm. which is he, and there's been points in his career where he's been very online, but there was, when The Leftovers came out, and season one got pretty heavily criticized by great television writers like Matt Zoller-Seitz or Andy Greenwald or Emily Nussbaum, he ended up taking it all in and then internalizing in a way where Leftover season two was such a positive corrective that it was heralded as one of the best TV seasons ever. And his thought process on it and when he talked about it was, I have this free resource of feedback from these like really smart, like in this case, these like television and film writers I really respect a lot and I would read anyway, even if it wasn't about my own stuff. So why wouldn't I try to tap into that as like a sort of resource of like, okay, let's see, maybe there's something to this. Right. I've said this forever about like the careers of some pretty famous like comedians and writers and stuff where it's like, you will see in a person's career where they get so popular and so famous that people stop pushing back, stop like saying like, that is not a good idea. And the work they start doing sucks. Like their their comedy becomes too big or their scripts are incomprehensible or whatever, because there was not somebody saying like, we need to cut this scene because this is terrible. And it's like suddenly they're only playing the biggest thing the whole time. And they're like doing cheap jokes or like, you know, like tropey stories or whatever, because there wasn't someone going, we're going to edit that. Like we, we won't film this. Um, I'm like, I don't ever want to get to that point. Like that. I hate, I hate that idea is like, it's not even resting on laurels. It's like assuming that you are famous because you are perfect and not because you were receptive to feedback and like worked hard and like, didn't take it for granted that you were doing a good job and all these things. And so, yeah, I, I literally like before we got on this call, well, I was napping, but before that, Um, I was like going, I took out a notebook and just started writing down like things I could be doing better based off of like feedback I was getting and like things I was kind of taking for granted in the story. And what's funny is before this, I was actually feeling pretty creatively like despondent where I was just like, what am I even doing? I don't think people like this. I'm working really hard. And for what? And since kind of opening myself up to the idea of perhaps there are actionable things I could be working on and improving, it has given me more uh, creative energy and a new fire to be like, what if I was like actually building on this instead of just 
continuing this through line of story I was telling, what if I was improving the process as well and like working on these things and improving myself and improving my abilities and not just staying at this level forever. And it sounds like, yeah, if you apply more of a problem solver mentality to it and like, it's almost like a getting things done philosophy of like, if it's just like very simple tasks then that like mm-hmm. those link together to be a much more interesting and endeavor. I've, I've used this word a lot, but I mean, it's what art is and it's like subjective, right? Because the thing is, is if I was building a machine and the machine didn't work, right? I would know that the machine didn't work and I would have to fix something within the machine. But telling a joke, telling a story, writing a script, you can't say, like, it is mechanically not working, so I know something needs to be fixed. You can look at it and think, this works perfectly. <laughs> and someone else looks at it and like, that is not working. Right, it's like cooking. You, it's more like, oh, right. maybe this needs oregano. Oh, maybe it's garlic, actually. I right. don't know. But even that is like, sometimes if you bite into something you've cooked and it's terrible, everyone will acknowledge it's like, yes, this is universally bad. But sometimes you write a script and you're like, I killed it. And there are people who are like, this is bad. And you're like, no, I killed it. This is great. You know what I mean? And so it's like that kind of thing of like, but it is difficult because the other side of this is maybe I'll work really hard and I'll spend the next like four days like completely rethinking everything we'll record the next episode and then it will go out and then people will be like worst one yet (laughs) and it's like well then do i internalize that because i felt good about like it's tricky right because it is there is never a point at which you're like and done growing but i'd rather just quit doing it then turn into this, like, fuck all these sensitive whiny babies. <laughs> I'm going to make the thing I like. Like, I would just stop doing yeah. it before I did that. Well, and, and on that subject, because you did talk about, like, a quantity versus quality thing at the earlier part of the conversation and this idea of doing things that just give you joy and the things that are still jobs and still create revenue for yourself, but, but the things that you most care about for you, when you do think about like the next 30 or 40 years, is it always podcasts or do podcasts just happen to be the best container for your thing right now? Well, the, the good news is, is like the three shows that I regularly continue to do now are with my brothers, my dad and my wife. And so like, I just like talking to them the trickiest one is Schmanners, but that's only because we're raising two kids now. And so, like, finding a time where it's like, and we both can sit in a room without them for 45 minutes is tough. But otherwise, it's like, I don't ever want to stop talking to my brothers. I don't ever want to stop talking to my dad. I don't ever stop talking to my wife. Um, and so, I enjoy doing those. Um, but I like the idea of being a kind of overall performer who gets to be in more things and do more stuff and i like writing the graphic novels uh i like being in movies we just did that that was great (laughs) i like being on tv that's wonderful i'd like to do more of that um yeah i just like to i like to be a performer i want i like performing and i want to perform more well i think it's gonna happen i think it has happened too and that's what that's what's so extraordinary is like being able to like reverse engineer these like audio things like trolls Two, or to to make my brother into a tv show eventually. yeah dude it's weird weird as hell yeah like it's, your voice it's not 
It, yeah, it's not a career trajectory that I would recommend to anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about careers like yours and your brothers. It's like it worked that one time, and that's why yeah. it can't work again. Because you can't be like, you know what? I dream of getting the voiceover work in animated movies. So what I'm going to do is have a podcast for ten years. <laughs> Well, Travis, buddy, I like your weird voice. I like your flamboyant voice. I like it all, and I love you. Hey, I love you too, Kevin. Thank you for talking to me. Hey, thanks for doing the show. Should we start recording? Uh, Yeah, I'm good to go now. Travis McElroy has a weird voice, and you can listen to that voice on My Brother, My Brother and Me, The Adventure Zone, or Schmanners, wherever you get your podcasts. Again, I don't know where you get your podcasts, but I'd love if you tell me, and I think it would really bond us together as friends. Inside Voices is produced by me and Steve Allman. Our theme music is by Pam Autori. And I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices, and please, at least for now, stay inside. That was a HeadGum Podcast.